Hey, this is David DeCamp from AntiWar.com, and this is Anti-War News for Thursday, September 29th, 2022. First story at the top of AntiWar.com today. This new $1.1 billion arms package for Ukraine includes 18 HIMARS launchers. So this was, uh, I went over this yesterday that the U.S. was going to announce a new uh, massive arms package for Ukraine, and it was detailed by the Pentagon on Wednesday. So it's $1.1 billion, and it includes 18 of these high-mobility artillery rocket systems known as the HIMARS. These are the portable, longer-range artillery systems that the U.S. started sending Kiev a few months back. Uh, But 18 is a lot of these launchers for them to send. So far, the U.S. has delivered 16 of these systems to Ukraine. And we know Russia has said it's destroyed a decent amount of them. But then Ukraine is always denies what Russia says. So it's just it's tough to know. I'm sure that they have destroyed some of them, at least. But we, we there's no way to know exactly how many they have right now. But these systems are made by Lockheed Martin. And this arms package is being given to Ukraine through the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, which allows the Biden administration to purchase arms for Kiev. A U.S. official said that the weapons will take a few years to be delivered as Washington is planning to arm Ukraine for the long haul, as they are saying. So this is part of what they're calling their long-term support for Ukraine. Just another sign that this war and this policy doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. So this package, it includes other systems. According to the Pentagon, the full package includes the 18 HIMARS and associated ammunition, 150 armored high-mobility multi-purpose wheeled vehicles, 150 tactical vehicles to tow weapons, 40 trucks and 80 trailers to transport heavy equipment, two radars for unmanned aerial systems, 20 multi-mission radars, counter-unmanned aerial systems, tactical secure communication systems, surveillance systems, explosive ordnance, disposal equipment, body armor, other field equipment, funding for training, maintenance, and sustainment. So the HIMARS that the U.S. has been sending to Ukraine, they are equipped with missiles that have a range of about 50 miles. But that can change, and Ukraine is requesting the Army Tactical Missile Systems, which have a range of about 190 miles. But Washington has been hesitant to send these longer-range missiles, although the Biden administration is under pressure from Congress to start sending them. Russia has said that providing such arms would cross a red line. So this 1.1 billion, it's just important to note, it's still being pulled from that $40 billion bill Biden signed back in May. And the Congress is ready to give him another 12.3 billion for Ukraine aid, which would bring the total to 65.9 billion that the US has will spend on this war. And that is the same amount, the same number, 65.9 billion is Russia's military budget for 2021, their entire military budget for last year. Um, It's probably gone up since then because of the war, but still, I mean, that really just says a lot. Um, And also on Wednesday, William uh, LaPlante, he is the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition. He met with representatives from 45 nations in Brussels to discuss boosting industrial capacity to make more weapons for Ukraine. According to the Pentagon, LaPlante shared plans to increase the production of ground-based long fu- ground-based long-range fires, air defense systems, air-to-ground munitions and other capabilities. 
The Pentagon said that nearly 20 other nations also detailed plans basically to strengthen their industrial base to make more weapons for Ukraine. And this is all about that long-term support. So you see who benefits from this policy. Um, and again, this is just a sign that the U.S. and NATO show no sign of backing down on supporting Ukraine in its war. Uh, okay, so the next story here, more about the attacks on the Nord Stream pipelines. The U.N. Security Council will convene a meeting on these apparent attacks on Friday at Russia's request. Um, Dmitry Polyansky, he is Russia's first deputy permanent representative to the UN. He said that Russia has requested this emergency meeting um, due to what he called subversive acts against Nord Stream's the Nord Stream pipelines. Now it's pretty clear at this point, at least, you know, we're seeing EU and NATO officials, Russian officials saying that this was sabotage. This was an attack. It, it's ruled out that it was an accident for the, for the most part. Um, because again, this was leaks, two leaks in Nord Stream one and one leak in Nord Stream two. And Moscow has rejected claims from Ukraine and some Western officials that it was behind the attack on the pipelines, which Russia has invested billions of dollars in to build. Uh, these are pipelines that run from Russia to Germany. Suspicion has fallen on the U.S. for the blasts after Radek Sikorsky, a Polish member of European Parliament and a Russia hawk, thanked the U.S. for the incident on Twitter. Um, so if you're watching the video, you'll see here I put in a tweet from Russia's deputy uh, representative to the UN, he quote tweeted this Polish guy, uh, Sikorsky, who, who seemed to insinuate that the US was behind this incident, and said, saying that Russia re requested the UN Security Council meeting. And he said, let's see who will thank, who will thank whom at this meeting. So Russia's looking for answers from the US. Um, the Biden administration so far, they have not offered a official denial about this uh, attack, but an unnamed senior military official, senior Pentagon official, said that the U.S. military was absolutely not involved in the incident. Um, but Russia has been demanding an answer from President Biden as to whether the U.S. was responsible or not because of early threatening comments against Nord Stream 2. Back in February, before Russia invaded, Biden said that the U.S. would bring an end to this pipeline if from Nord Stream 2 specifically. So Nord Stream 2 uh, has never been operational up and running, has never delivered gas to Germany. But the construction was completed last year, despite the U.S.'s efforts uh, to prevent it from being completed. They were sanctioning the pipeline, sanctioning the entities involved, threatening Germany with sanctions. I mean, they really didn't want this thing to be built. Um, so this is a big part of the reason why you see Russia out there demanding these answers. Uh, I just want to be clear that, you know, we have no idea at this point who was responsible. Um, this is just evidence that shows the U.S. might have had a reason to do it. Um, and Russia is definitely capable of, of doing something like this in the Baltic Sea. But um, they, they would have less motive, I would say, because of all the money that they've put into these pipelines and all the gas that's pouring into the Baltic Sea is rushing gas. Um, so the Nord Stream 1 was also not delivering to Germany. Russia shut it down indefinitely, citing uh, issues due to sanctions. And then you had the EU, you know, accuse Russia of weaponizing the pipeline. But, uh, you know, it's clearly a response to the U.S. and the EU, what, 
waging what an economic war against Russia. Um, so at the time of the incidents of the leaks, the pipeline still contained gas under pressure, even though they weren't delivering gas, there was still gas in there. Um, so, you know, we'll definitely keep a close eye on this story, see how it develops. Um, all right, the next one here, uh, Russia says that military operations will continue until at least the, the Donetsk oblast is what they say uh, liberated, quote unquote, liberated. So Russia said Wednesday that what they're calling their special military operation, that's what they're calling the war in Ukraine will continue at least until it captures all of the Donetsk region in Eastern Ukraine. So Donetsk is home to the self-declared Donetsk People's Republic, the DPR, which was first established in 2014, following the U.S. back to coup in Kiev. The DPR and other Russian-controlled areas in Ukraine are expected to be absorbed by Moscow after referendums that concluded on Tuesday. So this is interesting because when asked about uh, how, I guess, how how longer, how much longer will the fighting continue, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, quote, the least I can say with an absolute clarity is that you all know well that not the whole territory of the Donetsk People's Republic has been liberated. We are speaking here about the territory within its 2014 borders, end quote. Um, so Russia and the DPR, they currently control more than half of Donetsk. And, um, when last week, when president, uh, Putin ordered his partial mobilization, he still said that the military fighting is still going to be focused on, uh, capturing the rest of this, this area here. So if you're watching the video, you see all the areas highlighted in red are Russian controlled. And this is Donetsk. Um, so all these areas, you know, there looks like Russia is going to annex them. They're going to become part of Russia, which really puts this war in a new dangerous phase. Um, referendums were also held in Luhansk, Kherson, and Zaporizhia. And authorities, they reported results that showed a huge majority of voters want to join Russia. I should say uh, the DPR and the LPR, the Luhansk People's Republics, both self-declared after the 2014 coup. Um, they did ask Putin, they asked to join Russia back then. Uh, so they've been asking for a while. And a lot of hawks in Russia think Putin should have done that then. And they think he think that, thinks that they ha he hasn't acted quickly enough on this issue. Just to give you an idea of, of uh, from my understanding of what people inside Russia uh, that support the war, I uh, think. Um, you know, and when these referendums, I mean, I'm not in a position to say if they were legit or not, but I think um, there's a lot of just hysteria coming out of the Western media about them. But either way, Russia is going to take these territories, it seems, and they're going to treat, they're saying they're going to treat Ukrainian attacks on them as attacks on Russian territory, which has big implications for all the nuclear warnings that we've been hearing about. Just very dangerous phase. And, uh, just speaking of all this uh, stuff, I want to mention our sponsor, How the West Brought War to Ukraine by Benjamin Ablo, which outlines the steps that the U.S. and NATO and other Western powers took to bring this war, uh, to provoke the war uh, in, in Ukraine that we're seeing now. And uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who has been a pretty important, a very important voice uh, on this issue since Russia invaded, one of the few people that can get on Fox News, you know, more mainstream outlets and say uh, uh, and speak truth about this this war. Um, 
he said, for those concerned about U.S. national security and the peace of Europe, this book is essential reading. Uh, so you can purchase it on Amazon for $10. The link, you'll find the link in the description. And if you want the ebook, the Kindle, it's 99 cents. That's the lowest rate that he could sell it for. He just wants to get the book out there. So that's how the West brought war to Ukraine. And uh, go read it and you'll support a good author. Um, okay, so back to the news here. This next one is from Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman at the Libertarian Institute. And it says that the U.S. has increased surveillance of Kaliningrad, which is the, the Russian enclave in the on the Baltic Sea. It is in between Lithuania and Poland. Um, more uh, U.S. spy planes have been spotted circling Kaliningrad. The, the idea is that people think it's over. They're looking for nuclear activity, uh, but it's just an example of how tensions are increasing in the region. And uh, just to explain, Kaliningrad is... Russian territory. It's like Alaska is to the U.S. It's a Russian oblast, as they say, a Russian state. Uh, it's not um, like a territory or something. It It, it is Russia. Um, all right. The next one, we got more uh, headaches for governments in Europe. Tens of thousands protest against NATO and the EU in Prague. That's the capital of the Czech Republic. So this marked the second time within one month that massive demonstrations took place in the city as Western sanctions against Russia are backfiring on Europe and energy prices are soaring. The demonstrations in Prague have brought together parties from across the political spectrum. According to Reuters, the organizing group, which is known as Czech Republic First, is against Prague's EU and NATO memberships and wants the country to be militarily neutral. One demonstrator told Reuters, quote, this government is absolutely anti-Czech. It serves Brussels, American power, and NATO. It has no regard for Czech citizens' interests, end quote. So European, uh, European leaders across the continent, they're worried about increasing civil unrest as winter is approaching. In Germany, this is interesting, thousands have gathered in recent days uh, in the northeastern state of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, to demand that Berlin open the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen. Uh, but it's just interesting to see um, people are out there calling for this to get Russian gas flowing again because of the prices that they're dealing with. Now, one thing I, I, I don't think I mentioned in the Nord Stream article that I should have said is that the repairs are going to be extremely difficult. So there's a good chance that these pipelines may never get be able to deliver gas uh, ever again. I mean with sanctions on Russia, it makes working with Russian companies, uh, you know, almost impossible for the European countries. All right. The next one, Kamala Harris says that the U S will operate undaunted and unafraid in the Taiwan Strait. So vice president Kamala Harris, she addressed U S troops in Japan on Wednesday after she attended the funeral of Shinzo Abe, the former Japanese prime minister who was assassinated in July. Her trip came at a time of soaring tensions between the U.S. over the issue of Taiwan, which she, she seemed like she wants to escalate those tensions even more. She said in her speech, quote, we will continue to fly, sail and operate undaunted and unafraid wherever and whenever international law allows, end quote. So she was referring to the Taiwan Strait when she made that statement. And what she also said, which is probably more provocative, uh, in Beijing's eyes, is that the U.S. will continue to strengthen unofficial ties with Taipei and accuse China of trying to change the status quo across the Taiwan Strait. 
She said, quote, we anticipate continued aggressive behavior from Beijing as it attempts to unilaterally undermine the status quo, end quote. So while the U.S. is trying to put the blame on China for the current tensions, there has been a clear shift in U.S. policy toward Taiwan, most notably Biden's rhetoric. He recently said for the fourth time during his presidency that the U.S. would defend Taiwan if China invades, breaking from strategic ambiguity, longstanding U.S. policy. China stepped up its military activity around Taiwan since Nancy Pelosi visited the island at the beginning of August, which was the beginning of a series of uh, U.S. US delegations visiting the island. More congressional delegations came after. Two U.S. governors, state governors visited Taiwan. Uh, But now Kamala Harris is heading to South Korea, where she is expected to visit the demilitarized zone. Ahead of her visit, North Korea launched two ballistic missiles into the waters off its coast as U.S. and South Korean warships are are conducting drills in the region. Uh, So the next one is more on that, more on the situation over in the Korean Peninsula from Kyle Anselin at the Libertarian Institute. So the the U.S. and South Korea, they conducted war games and and uh, did these drills, these naval drills together. For the first time in, in a long time, uh, they restarted these drills. A U.S. aircraft carrier went there. It was the first time since 2018 that uh, a U.S. aircraft carrier went to Korean waters. Um, so, you know, North Korea is condemning these increasing ties between the U.S. and South Korea as they're picking up on their military games. And North Korea is regularly test firing ballistic missiles off its coast it's become a regular thing again and uh tensions just continue to escalate between the north and south and the biden administration hasn't uh doesn't seem to be doing much to try to de-escalate those tensions and this came uh you know they stopped doing war games and stuff because of the progress that the trump administration made with just talks between the north and the south and of course trump met with kim jong-un you know, n- nothing tangible really came of that, but the symbolism of it was pretty big. And the, and the U.S. did, they did stop doing some drills, but that seems to be over now. Um, all right. So the next one, this is from Jason Ditz. So the U.S. has downed, says that it shot down an Iranian drone in Iraq, uh, which is concerning um, when you think of possible escalations that could happen. But this happened after Iran attacked Kurds in Iraq. Uh, Iran fired artillery at Kurdish groups in areas of northern Iraq near the border, killing, reportedly killing 13. And this comes uh, amid these protests in Iran, and, and they're blaming some of the unrest on what they call terrorist groups in, in northern Iraq. Um, but they've been launching some pretty serious strikes on that region. And Iran sent a drone in the direction of Erbil in northern Iraq, and the U.S. shot, CENTCOM said that it shot a Iranian drone down. Um, so this is definitely an area to keep an eye on. They said they did it. It was at Iraq's request. The Iraqi government asked them to. Um, but, yeah, it's definitely concerning, these, these Iranian attacks in northern Iraq and uh, now the U.S. downing this drone. There's always escalation, and that's the risk of escalation, and that's what the U.S. presence in Iraq is. It's basically a tripwire for bigger conflict. Um, the next one, uh, this is from The Cradle, and it is uh, titled Tracking the Flow of Stolen Syrian Oil into Iraq. And I would say um, I 
I did read this over, but not enough to really give you guys a proper summary of it. Um, but it's an investigation they did about the movement of oil from Syria, because where the U.S., the area in Syria that the U.S. occupies is where most of Syria's oil is. And there's always all these reports of the U.S. military actually sending this oil over the border into Iraq. And this is uh, just an investigation about it that uh, you, you could check out if you want to find out more information. And the next one, more tensions in Iraq. Rockets were fired at the Green Zone as Parliament convenes. Three Katyusha rockets were fired at Iraq's Green Zone on Wednesday, wounding seven security force personnel while Parliament was in session. Um, so there's just been tensions, political tensions and stuff. It's not clear at all who fired these um, rockets, but it's just something to keep an eye on. This is from Middle East Eye, by the way. And the tensions have really been over the failure uh, to form a government after elections last November. So, uh, sorry, last October, so almost a year ago, where Maktada el Sadr's supporters, the Shia cleric, who is uh, more of a nationalist, more independence-minded than other Shia groups, and they failed to form a government. He didn't want to work with the other Shia groups that are more uh, aligned with Iran um, and tensions have really boiled over, over that. And I think there's going to be a new election soon. So we'll keep something to keep an eye on. Uh, but the next one, uh, UN envoy warns fighting will rage in Yemen if ceasefire isn't extended. So the UN envoy for Yemen on Tuesday warned that more fighting will break out if the warring parties do not agree to extend the current ceasefire, which is due to expire on October 2nd. Fighting has been reported on the ground, and both sides have accused the other of violating the ceasefire, but Saudi airstrikes in Yemen and Houthi attacks inside Saudi Arabia have not been reported for months, marking the longest period of calm since the U.S.-backed Saudi coalition intervened in Yemen in 2015. So I can't say for sure that there have been no... Uh, I haven't seen any reports of Saudi airstrikes in Yemen. Um, I know that they've been accused of violating the ceasefire, firing over the border, of flying planes and drones for surveillance, but I haven't seen any reports of Saudi airstrikes. Um, I can't say for sure that they haven't happened, but as far as I know, they haven't happened, so that's huge. Uh, and that's since March, so this is the longest period of calm. Um, but the UN envoy, Hans Grunberg, uh, made the warning after holding talks with the Saudi-backed Yemeni Presidential Council in Riyadh and with Houthi officials in Oman. This envoy said, quote, we are at a crossroads where the risk of a return to war is real, and I am urging the parties to, cho to choose an alternative that prioritizes the needs of the Yemeni people, end quote. So the Saudis have eased the blockade on Yemen somewhat as some flights have been leaving the Sana'a airport and more fuel ships are entering the Red Sea port of Hodeidah. But the blockade has not been fully lifted, and that has long been the demand of, uh, a demand made by the Houthis as a condition for peace talks, for a real political settlement, for, for you know a real end to the war. They want the blockade to be totally lifted. And now the Saudis are accusing the Houthis of violating the ceasefire by keeping the city of Taiz under siege. So the Houthis have opened up some roads to this city under the ceasefire, but are refusing to open main access roads until the Saudi 
until Saudi-backed militias leave the area. So as this fragile ceasefire has held, and this is very important, war powers resolutions have been introduced in Congress to end U.S. involvement in the war, which would effectively ground the Saudi Air Force since it relies on U.S. maintenance. Now, the U.N. estimates, just to give you an idea of how brutal this war is, I mean, there's just so much I could get into on this, but just to give you the the death toll, the estimated death toll, this is from the U.N., they say that at least 377,000 people have been killed in this war. More than half of them are children under the age of five. And this is a lower end estimate. This was the death toll that they gave at the end of 2021. And while the there's been the ceasefire, airstrikes have stopped. Airstrikes spiked in the beginning of this year in January and February. And the blockade is still being enforced. It's been loosened a little bit, but the people are still suffering from the conditions caused by the war. And as you see, as always the case, it's the most vulnerable. It's children that are dying. Um, so, but we could actually do something to help end this war as there are resolutions in war powers. Resolutions have been introduced in both the house and the Senate. And there's over 100 bipartisan co-sponsors for this effort. And these war powers resolutions, like I said, would end U.S. involvement in the war. Um, and really now is the time to push it as this ceasefire is about to about to uh, end. And if you go to 1833stopwar.com, it explains this. It tells you the, the resolutions and it gives you a prompt. You could call this number 1833stopwar. It gets you connected with your representative. And then you can go through this prompt here and and read, read from the script. You could say your own thing, of course, but this makes it easy. It makes it easy for me. I don't like calling. I feel kind of awkward, but this makes it very easy and simple. So if people do this just to put the pressure on, I think it's really important. Um, and I think it could make a difference. So, you know, if you're in the U.S., um, go to 1833stopwar.com and tell uh, your friends to. Because this is just one of the most brutal things. It's probably the worst thing that's going on in the world uh and that's saying a lot considering all the wars and stuff but just that this has been an intentional war against the, the civilians of yemen uh but okay that's it for the news for today um i know that was a lot of stuff but we got through it um i want to remind you again october 8th in washington dc at the department of justice there will be a rally for julian assange that i will be speaking at um you could contact the show at news at antiwar.com you can follow me on Twitter. You can support us, antiwar.com slash donate. You can get some nice antiwar.com t-shirts in the link in the description. That's a great way to support us. Uh, but I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.